Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachstum. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hi, this is Michelle. Hey, I'm Ted. Welcome back to Spaßbremse for the second part of our series on German reunification. So you'll recall that our first part of the series was on the political aspects of reunification. Part three, released this coming Friday, will be on the cultural divides and battles over the memory of East Germany and socialism. But today, which is part two, is how the privatization of the East German economy actually functioned and the economic consequences of that. Exactly. But before we get started, Ted and I would like to thank our producer Isaac for all his amazing work so far. We've been in kind of bad form not mentioning him on previous episodes, but he makes us sound smarter and more professional. So we really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Isaac. Yeah, Isaac's the best. Thanks a lot. Before we get going, I should also say that if you haven't already, please listen to our previous episode on reunification. That's episode two overall. Um, we titled it Sinfia ein Volk. Um, and that'll give you a lot of background that's pretty important to understanding what's actually going on now in this episode, which is our what, fourth episode overall and second of the series on reunification. Even for those who have listened to that first episode, we'll just briefly recap a bit in case you've forgotten some of the details or those have gotten hazy after the last couple weeks. So in the late stages of the DDR, East Germany, there was little popular will for capitalism. And you see that in the polling data. Now, a very, very small minority actually wanted to adopt a, a Western style capitalist system. And so these protests in 88, 89, those were for democratization and reform of some aspects of the economy, not protests to become a market economy. And so the process of reunification begins famously with the wall falling in November of 1989. And in March 1990, you have an election in East Germany, really the first and last um, what we would call kind of a, a fair open election uh, by Western standards. Ein Volkskammerwahlen in der DDR ist die CDU mit großem Abstand als stärkste Partei hervorgegangen. And so what you had was this surprise victory for the CDU in this election. Ja, meine Damen und Herren, die konservative Allianz für Deutschland wird möglicherweise, wie eben gesagt wurde, die absolute Mehrheit der Sitze haben, möglicherweise. This is largely on the back of West German Chancellor of the CDU, Helmut Kohl's promise to create a parity between the Deutschmark and the Ostmark, which would have given the East a lot more purchasing power in the short run, but it also killed the competitiveness of East German businesses because it made their exports very expensive. This is also true because the rest of the Eastern Bloc was falling apart at the same time, um, eliminating the sources of exports for a lot of East German goods. This does get introduced and people people do vote for it, vote for the CDU on this basis. So, da haben wir die CDU mit 42,3 Prozent unter Lothar de Maizière, dann die SPD unter Ibrahim Böhme kam auf 21,1 Prozent. And it gives them this purchasing power in the short run, has a lot of long-term economic damages, 
and serves as the pretext for a lot of the privatizations because then you have this equality of currencies. And so then these companies don't look very competitive on paper and it gives them a reason to be sold off or, or liquidated. And so what this did, this election with the near majority for the CDU, it really set in motion a decision to pursue a very quick reunification process. This is essentially shock therapy, as it was called elsewhere in the Eastern Bloc after the fall of communism and the transition to capitalism. So the idea was we need to move quickly. We need to liberalize prices. It all just needs to yeah, be, be a shock to the system. And then that will get them to converge with the West as quickly as possible. In practice, this never really happened, as you see by declining living standards throughout huge portions of the former communist countries. In terms of how this actually happened and the agency that did this, uh, this was the Treuhand, which was in charge of privatizing the East German economy. It really delivered the shock of shock therapy for privatization. And the argument for doing this was that the DDR was so economically backward that it needed a rapid transition to capitalism. As we'll see, though, this wasn't really the case and things definitely could have gone differently than they did without these lingering economic consequences that we still have in the East today, where average output, average wages um, are much lower and unemployment is higher. And so a lot of this dates back to the way in which the privatization was done in the early 90s. Exactly. These lingering economic divides are really important to people in former East German states today. They have much lower wages than in West German states. And the two and a half million jobs that were lost as a direct effect of the Treuhand's actions um, are what we're going to discuss in this episode. We want to mention and stress that this was not preordained, despite what defenders of the Treuhand say. Reunification could have, of course, happened differently. I want to start out with a counterpoint to the prevailing view of the DDR economy as, quote, ailing. In an interview with Professor Dr. Krista Luft, who was the DDR Minister for Economic Affairs at the time of reunification, she does admit the economy in the East had some weaknesses. And when compared to the most productive European economy, West Germany, of course, did not seem competitive. However, if you change the benchmark, the situation appears far less dire. In 1988, for example, the DDR is producing just over half of the BRD's GDP per capita and four-fifths of Britain's. Spain, on the other hand, could boast only three quarters of the DDR's GDP per capita. So this kind of puts things in perspective. You don't have to compare East Germany only with West Germany just because they're both Germany. <laughs> There's other states. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's super wild. Like before learning more about this and doing a lot of research, like it, the DDR is always portrayed as this like totally backward and like failed state. But by any reasonable global standard, even in the late 80s, it, it was a very wealthy country. I mean, like Britain, like we hold, always hold up Britain as like a very like prosperous capitalist economy in a lot of ways. And like 80% of Britain's GDP per capita, like that's not terrible. You know, we talked in the first episode how things were stalling a bit and the, the economy wasn't great in the DDR in the late 80s. But it's not like it's not like a total. It's not wreck on the or, brink yeah, of fails. collapse. Yeah. But yeah, that's what they yeah. acted and still act like and still portray it as. Yeah, and that has a very powerful ideological element to it, and it and it justifies a lot of what was done and 
you kind of have to paint the DDR as a totally failed state or else uh, or else it doesn't support a lot of what we're going to talk about later in this episode. Exactly. And um, Professor Dr. Krista Luft, she also argues that the titles, the titles, we love them. She also argues that some of this misconception comes from the fact that inner cities in the DDR did appear dilapidated and West Germans maybe visiting for the first time in a while kind of extrapolated this perception to the actual industrial capacity of the DDR, right? If you see a cityscape that is crumbling, some infrastructure that isn't, you know, up to the standards maybe in West Germany or elsewhere, then you might think that the factories are also in a dire state. Luft mentions that companies were investing in modern equipment well into the 80s. Yet when you read about Treuhand in German, you keep coming across this word marode to describe the East German economy, which means ramshackle or decrepit. It's pretty it's pretty rich of the of the Vessies, honestly. Like have they ever been to like like Essen or something? Or like <laughs> I was just at the train station in, in Braunschweig the other day and I was looking around and I was like if this was in the East, West Germans would look at this and say, oh, my God, this is such a sign of how backwards and like awful socialism is. And like this is was in West Germany, like boarded up buildings, like falling apart train stations and all this stuff. And so it's like I don't really know like what the gleaming big city lights of like NRV or like Niedersachsen they're talking about that the East had to look so bad compared to. But uh, yeah, who knows? Yikes. Right. So we do want to get into how the economy was actually privatized. And this happened with the Treuhand. That's shorthand for Treuhandanstalt, which literally means trust agency. It's kind of hilarious, which operated from 1990 to 1994. The job of this agency was to privatize the state-owned companies in the former DDR. And at the time, it actually was the biggest holding company in the world it had approximately 8,000 companies under its control, and the actions really resulted in this rapid deindustrialization and two and a half million jobs lost. As one East German paper put it, quote, it passes judgment on the life and death of entire regions and branches of the economy, and finally on the fate of 16 million people in the eastern states of Germany. Right. And so there's this, you know, this real economic carnage uh, that, that occurs as, as a result of the Troyhound's actions. But what happened wasn't totally unexpected. It wasn't like everyone was shocked at the, the negative outcomes. For example, there was this German Council of Economic Experts, like a nonpartisan group, which had prepared an annual report on the German economies for, for decades, I think dating back to the 60s. So this isn't like a real lefty or like partisan group at all. So writing about reunification in February of 1990, it actually expressed its strong opposition to the monetary union that uh, that Cole offered and was was popular for a short period of time, propelled the CDU to victory and ultimately was disastrous for the East German economy. So they warned, and I quote, the rapid economic annexation of the DDR would be an adventure, not with an uncertain, but rather a highly certain outcome. The collapse of large parts of the GDR economy, which without the protection of its own currency with a low exchange rate, would not be internationally competitive. And there's this 
last little sentence here that's extremely prescient, quoting again, evidently, it is being deliberately calculated that it will be possible to blame the enormous social costs of a rapid annexation on the old system. And this is writing in 1990, and this is exactly what happens, is rather than blaming the economic fallout of reunification on policy decisions in the West, it's blamed on the backwardness of the East. It's, it's crazy how some people really, really saw this coming. And the report went on to state that a rapid annexation would be a, quote, binational disaster and that it would cause this really unmanageable crisis. And, and in a lot of ways, that's that's exactly what happened. So if you hear anyone trying to play dumb or act like, oh, we didn't know it would be so difficult. Well, some people did and they weren't listened to. It's really key. These warnings that you just described, they were just completely disregarded because everybody was so focused on and obsessed with German unity. Yeah, it was like a, it was like a team spirit thing. Like, oh, you're not like, you know, you know, you don't want to win. Like, you're not you're not into the project. Like, where's yeah, where's your team spirit? And so anyone that wasn't kind of a, a yes man or, or overly positive about this was uh, was disregarded. And the, and the, yeah, the, the warnings were not heeded. And so, you know, what what actually did the Troy hunt do here? You know, what what specifically were the actions that it took? Essentially, it just closed down a ton of viable businesses. And so how did it decide to do this? In a lot of ways, this is very opaque and arbitrary. You know, the, the finance ministry, they chose consultants from really illustrious firms like KPMG, uh, Roland Berger, or McKinsey, who, you know, I'm sure you've uh, heard them implicated in a few more scandals. You can always be a bit skeptical when there's a government contract with McKinsey Never, never seems like that leaves a good legacy, as uh, we've seen some things with a certain president of the European Commission embroiled in a few issues from her time as a defense minister in Germany. So this is, you know, uh, several decades earlier, but, you know, McKinsey, uh, McKinsey getting involved in government and getting up to some mischief. And so, you know, they had these very arbitrary criteria and they would decide which companies were going to be privatized, improved or liquidated. And so the consultants who cooperated very closely with the conservative West German government, they acted in a way that would protect West German businesses from competition and enable really good deals for Western capital. You know, of course, business, these consultants in the Troyhand were members of business and the, the CDU, these are all very closely tied groups and the actions that they took, um, they, they helped each other out and uh, at the expense of a lot of Eastern workers. So, for example, there was a ceramics factory in Saxony that was shut down on KPMG's recommendation, despite interest from many credible buyers. There was the East German airline Interflug, which was considered um, pretty highly competitive. And it wasn't actually allowed to merge with Lufthansa on competition grounds. So instead, it just got dissolved and then Lufthansa got its slots at Schönefeld Airport free of charge and all of its German routes, getting a monopoly anyway without having to go through the hassle of actually paying for the company. So, you know, you, completely you get the monopoly insane. for free. That is completely yeah, yeah. insane. Yeah, it's, a great, it's a great deal. Another like famous example are the mines in Bischofferode, which were sold off to a Western competitor and then promptly closed. This resulted in a hunger strike from the laid-off workers and drew huge media attention at the time. Hier ist das erste deutsche Fernsehen mit der Tagesschau.
Die Proteste gegen die Schließung des thüringischen Kalibergwerkes in Bischofferode weiten sich aus. Der Hungerstreik hat am Donnerstag begonnen, nachdem auch der Treuhandausschuss des Bundestages der Schließung der Grube bis zum Jahresende zugestimmt hatte. Ich bin vom ersten Tag seit Donnerstag mit hier. Und für uns gibt es nur eine Alternative, durchhalten bis zum Erfolg. And all these kind of legendary examples are of course in addition to 25,000 smaller scale privatizations. You've got the 475 nationally owned bookstores, 481 movie theaters and so on and so forth that were all sold to new owners. You know, pharmacies, small shops, restaurants, it's all gotta go, gotta be sold off. Countless more companies of all sorts sold for the nominal price of one Deutschmark. Overall, the argument is that these fire sales were a way to avoid competition for Western companies. It's kind of difficult to prove this in every case, but less competition for West German enterprise was the outcome. Especially, like Ted said, looking at these close associations between Treuhand execs, West German investors, ruling CDU party members, they're all intertwined. It makes it all the more likely. I am going to rattle off some numbers for you here, just so we can get these. Gotta have that data. Yeah, gotta get these vegetables in. Approximately 50% of the total businesses, the total number being 6,546, 50% of those were completely or almost entirely privatized. 3,718 were liquidated. 1,588 companies got reprivatized. That means returned to their original owners. Just 310 got handed over to municipalities. And of the new ownership, we had 5%. East Germans and 80% West Germans in charge. Right. So that that means there were far more foreign owners of former East German state-owned companies than there were actually East German owners of the companies that used to be held jointly in their name. So it can, gives you a great idea of, of who this process was for, who it helped, and why it was done. What did this actually do on a macro level? You know, we we talked about the specific examples, and we'll get into a few more of those later. But in terms of the actual employment and industrial output, it's pretty pronounced. Um, here I'm quoting from a piece from Rachel um, Knabel and Pierre Rimbert uh, in Le Monde Diplomatique. And they say, quote, in July 1990, industrial output had fallen 43.7% from 1989. By August, 51.9%. And by the end of the year, 70%. The official unemployment figure rose from 7,500 in January 1990 to 1.4 million in January 1992, but was more than double that when short-time working, retraining, and pre-retirement were factored in. No other country in Central or Eastern Europe suffered more economically by leaving the Soviet Union's output. And as we've said a few times, but just need to keep stressing, 2.5 million jobs lost, 4 million were under the Troyhans remit in 1990, down to only 1.5 million in 1994. You can just picture the steepness of these graphs, right? Like if these numbers are just kind of swimming around in your brain, just think about how- Line go down. Yeah. Line go down, exactly. And so overall, the amount of workers in the East dropped from 9.7 million at unification to 6.2. In the first half of the year, overall manufacturing output was devastated, as we talked about. 
And despite these just real hard stats that show you how bad this was for so many people, there are still defenders of the process today. And the thing is, they can't really do so on the merits because of all the things we just outlined. So they always have to say things like, oh, Troy Hand had an impossible task. It turned out to be a lightning rod for everybody. It's unfairly blamed. You know, there was no other way to do it. It just had to be done in this shock therapy style. And this last argument in particular really echoes this like Thatcherite Tina logic. There is no alternative. And that's because the process was so disastrous that the defenders of this neoliberal transition have to say, well, it just had to be that way. And they're not able to actually point to any concrete outcomes as successful. Exactly. I mean, something that definitely didn't have to happen the way it did was also the rampant corruption in connection with basically everything the Toyon was involved in, in addition to the legal corruption that characterizes a great deal of partnerships between consultancies and governments, as Ted was outlining, there was outright criminality. So much so that it got its own German word, which is when you really know something's a big deal. Vereinigungskriminalität is unification criminality. It's probably fair to say that Treuhand was just a money printer for con artists. The agency failed to check its clients' references and criminal records. I mean, just basic due diligence was not performed here, and scandals were everywhere as a result. In many of the cases, West German investors took the grant money meant for modernizing these ailing East German factories and just embezzled those funds straight up. <laughs> right. And I'll just quote here again from that Knebel and Rimbert piece, which we'll put in the show notes. Quote, in 1998, a parliamentary commission estimated that the process had cost between three and six billion Deutschmarks, the, the corruption. Huge sums were paid to liquidators, for example, a 44,000 Deutschmark bonus per privatization and 88,000 if a target had been exceeded. The consultants profited massively, and over four years, the Troyhans external partners pocketed 1.3 billion Deutschmarks with 460 million going to consultancy fees in 1992 alone. Some really notable cases of corruption, for example, in Halle, in exchange for selling two DDR companies for far below their value, two managers in the Halle office collected 24 million marks from buyers in the West. For example, the Omnibus Fahrzeuge company from Halle was sold for the junk price of 1.5 million marks and $2 million was illegally collected for the managers. Um, that said that correctly. That's more money in the bribe than the sale price. <laughs> and this is because for Western business, it's cheaper to pay a bribe and get a fire sale price than just pay a reasonable price for the business. So you saw this in, in Who's backwards? Cases. I mean, what is really going on? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It's, a, it's an interesting reading of economic backwardness. But um, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess corruption is, is the norm these days. And so another really legendary example, there were these shipyards in Rostock and Visma in the east, and these were bought out by the Bremer Fulkan shipyards and then shut down with 1.5 thousand people losing their jobs. And throughout this process, 700 million Deutsche Mark in, um, in funds which were intended for the East German shipyards actually flowed instead to Bremer Fulkan. 
Nevertheless, the firm went bankrupt in the spring of 1996 with the subsidy money intended for the East then lost in the bankruptcy process. So they took the money, shut down the shipyards, and still went bankrupt anyway. So um, some real business geniuses there in Bremen. The original money printer go or whatever that meme is. Money printer go straight into the ocean. (laughs) Exactly. We do want to mention the pushback and resistance to the Treuhand's actions at the time. Obviously, with huge job losses, you get protests happening. There were 20,000 textile workers in Chemnitz that were threatened with job loss, and they marched in March of 1991. 25,000 chemical workers in Saxony-Anhalt um, occupied their factories that same year. Many former Eastern dissidents, including Church leaders and labor unions joined in the protests. Treuhand's Berlin offices were actually set on fire in March of 1990. And the next day, the head of the Treuhand Detta Froveda was shot and killed. Guten Abend, meine Damen und Herren. Der Chef der Berliner Treuhandanstalt Rohwerda ist offensichtlich von Terroristen ermordet worden. Dafür spricht nicht nur ein Bekennerschreiben der RAF, das unweit des Tatortes in Düsseldorf gefunden wurde. He was then replaced by Birgit Breul from the Roland Berger Consultancy. She was a CDU member and devotee of privatization. She really kept going hard with the sell-offs. Yeah, the assassination did not uh, did not really change Just the course blip. of this Just at a blip. Just a real, yeah. <laughs> Dietmar Bartsch. A member of parliament representing the left-wing Die Linke party said that Bischofferode, those are the closed mines where the miners went on hunger strike that we mentioned earlier. Bart said, Bischofferode is an example of a competitive business shut down because of West German competition. It was about showing that the DDR was over, that there was nothing of value in it. And this kind of aligns with graffiti that was plastered everywhere in the East that read verraten und verkauft, that's betrayed and sold out. I mean, people really felt that at the time. Yeah, and this ties back to this idea of triumphalism that we were first introduced in our first reunification series of not just incorporating the East on Western terms, but showing their complete dominance over the East, that, that there really was nothing of value, as, as Barsh said. And so that, that served both economic interests and these broader ideological goals. And so throughout this time, there's a huge reversal of the optimism about reunification, which propelled the CDU to victory in that critical March 1990 election that we talked about last time. And there was a real honest enthusiasm at this time. Like we, you know, we, we talked about what people in 89 actually wanted and there was a change, you know, people got excited about the process that this is real and we're not, we're not trying to deny that at all, but that quickly faded away. For example, in a 1991 poll of reunification, only 7% of Easterners answered that they were completely happy. 40% said that they were often dejected and hopeless. So that optimism was was all short-lived, and, and we talked about the, the kind of end of history with these triumphant protests and everyone celebrating, tearing the wall down, and those, those really euphoric pictures you often see. Well, this is 1991. It did not last even two years. And so 
quite quickly, after only about four years, the Troy Hand was wrapped up. It ended in December of 1994, and by that time, it had done its job. It privatized or sold most of its portfolio, and it's really fair to say that this is an unprecedented economic event with the 2.5 million jobs lost and overall economic losses of the agency estimated at 256 billion Deutschmarks. And this is despite um, an overall balance sheet of 600 billion Deutschmarks. That estimate was of the, the initial president of the agency, you know, some people might argue with that, but regardless, even on its own terms, the, the agency did not perform very well. And according to Christian Luft, who we mentioned before, this was, quote, the largest ever destruction of productive capital in peacetime. We also mentioned that the, the vast majority of these went to the West, so and even foreign owners got more than East Germans. So not only were the jobs destroyed in the East and a lot of viable businesses shut down, Easterners didn't even get a stake in their own companies. Like we said, this, this really ties into these like broader narratives about this all being on the West term. For example, the former mayor of Hamburg, it was named was Henning Voscherau, said in 1996, quote, in reality, the five years of the quote, construction of the East, Aufbau Ost, represented the biggest program of enrichment for West Germany ever undertaken. And that totally flies in the face of this overall narrative of the Treuhand with their little slogan, what was it like, Deutsche von Deutsche, like, um, you know, Germans helping Germans. It wasn't really that at all. It was the East building up and enriching the West, not the other way around, even though the narrative you hear is the total opposite, that the East was a huge drag and that the West sacrificed super selflessly to build up the East. Exactly. And we have to keep in mind, like that was 25 years ago. In many ways, the wounds of this period never really healed. Like we mentioned at the outset of the episode, even today, there are ongoing East-West divisions. It's actually talked about constantly in the German press economic, cultural, political divisions. We want to cover the cultural aspect in the next episode, but first we should kind of give an overview of the present economic divisions. The Troy Hunt ended in 1994, but that was far from the end of the economic project of integrating the East into the West. And, you know, it, it's true, as you often hear, that the federal government spent a lot of money on infrastructure and other projects in the East. If you live in Germany and pay taxes, you'll see a line on your pay slip that says Solidaritätszuschlag. This is like the, the money that, that has gone to the East. They publish reports on this, the Bundesministerium für Wirtschaft, the BMWI. They stated in their 2020 report on this topic that they publish every year that, quote, since 1991, in Eastern Germany, roughly 82 billion has been invested in federal railways, roads and waterways, as well as in local roads and commuter rail. Um, you know, that, that's true. The, the road quality in the East is definitely better than it was 30 years ago. But if you're trying to drive in a car that you can't afford, between a job you don't have and an apartment that costs way too much, that really nice road doesn't get you that much because the, the job loss is the real crucial part here. 
you know, and there was a lot of other spending as well that we don't want to neglect. We just want to contextualize. For example, um, there's about 250 billion euros in e-specific transfer payments and up to 1.2 trillion euros in overall spending, considering, you know, the higher unemployment and so on. And this is what's always called Aufbau Ost or the reconstruction of the East. This is always used in like a, a really derogatory way, I find. This idea there's like the, the Vesi, Besavisa telling the backward Ulsi how to run their economy and just endlessly frustrated that they haven't figured it out. And it's always blaming the East for not catching up with the West, never blaming the West for doing this process of reunification in a very inequitable way. So even today, the new Lenda, the new states of the East, have only about 70% of the GDP per capita of the East. Um, and something to keep in mind for a lot of these statistics when you'll see the GDP per capita comparisons is that it, the East actually includes Berlin, which was not all the East at the time. There was, of course, West Berlin, which was a capitalist system. And Berlin being, you know, a, a capital city, like definitely drags up the overall average in the East and it still lags behind. Now, there's some prosperous cities in the East, like Leipzig, Berlin, I mentioned, Dresden's growing quite a bit. And still, even with these relative success stories on capitalist terms, the overall region lags behind substantially. To continue in 2018, the average unemployment rate was 6.9% in the states of the former East, compared with only 4.8% in the 10 states of the former West. Disposable incomes were about 10% lower in the West. And the overall result of this is really what I think of as like a double triumph of reunification for Western capital. The West got the economic spoils and it got to blame all subsequent problems on Eastern incompetence and backwardness rather than Western rapaciousness. And so I, I want to call back that 1990 report from the Council of Economic Advisors and just to, just to reiterate it, they said, quote, evidently it is being deliberately calculated that it will be possible to blame the enormous social costs of a rapid annexation on the old system. 31 years ago, they said that. And that's exactly what happened today. It's always the East's fault. It's the legacy of communism that's haunting the East economically, not the legacy of shock therapy. Exactly. Um on a more representational level, today, former East Germans are underrepresented in leadership positions. Of the 28 Beamtete Staatssekretäre, those are high-ranking civil servants in the federal government, zero of them are from former East Germany. There's a, an extreme lack of representation in higher education as well. Just two of the 108 rectors at German universities are from the former East. Right. And a lot of that has to do with the total purging of Marxist thought from the Easter, from the German Academy after the fall of the East, which we want to get into next time in terms of the cultural legacy of this. But that has a real actual impact in terms of who is at the universities, as if you make it very difficult to be a Marxist at a German university. You have people in the East who are trained in Marxist thought as they were doing their PhDs, maybe in the late 80s, now have a very hard time finding a good job in German universities. So, you know, even if you're not a Marxist, like you can't really deny the impact that he's had on social sciences. And so to, to really purge that out of the academy is a 
is a huge intellectual loss as well as a real injustice for academics that grew up in the East. Definitely. On a more kind of everyday level, perhaps people have seen these couple of East German brands that survived the transition. You've got Radeberger Pilz. Aus der deutschen Brauerei, die als erste nur nach Pilsener Brauart braute und noch bis heute braut. Radeberger Pilsner. Ein Radeberger. Rotkäppchen Sekt, very famous and beloved. Or the net like Teenagers, <laughs> yeah, teenagers everywhere. I love to get headaches from that stuff. So exactly. congratulations to East Germany for having that success. <laughs> Rotkäppchen Sekt. Fantasie aus tausend Perlen. And the Netto supermarket chain was the other one I wanted to mention. It just does kind of beg the question, like, what else could there have been, right? Yeah, and this just produces this, like, all these closed companies, right? It, like, how could that not produce a lingering resentment when you say, hey, you know, I, I had a good job. We made a good product um, and it was shut down. And, and why did it have to be that way? And, you know, there's these couple examples of, of companies that, that did compete and could do well. And, yeah, who knows? Who knows whose career, whose job, whose life could have been saved and, and what um, what else could have been out there? Yeah, it makes sense for there to be kind of this lingering resentment among East Germans. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to talk about that next episode, like we said. The um, divisions that are felt to this day are often polled. Like I said, you see this in the German media all the time in 2019, this is from a Pew poll, uh, 67% of East Germans said that they don't feel like they live in a united country. Only 47% of Germans in general feel that the two sides have overcome what divided them 25 years ago. And 25% of East Germans think that their situation has worsened in the 24 years since reunification. Right. So totally flying in the face of this idea that that everything's an upward trend and the East is going to catch up and everyone's going to be as happy as those those jolly Western Germans. And so, yeah, that that really covers what we wanted to bring you about the economic legacy of reunification. You'll see these these statistics everywhere, as as Michelle pointed out, you know, I guarantee in two months come Come the anniversary of reunification in October, you'll see all these reports and say, oh, progress being made. However, the East still lags behind in X, Y, Z. And, you know, that's true. It, it does it does lag behind if you, you know, counting things like, like GDP and so on. But it's important to know why that happened. And, and that's what we really wanted to lay out here for you is it's not really the fault of the East in a lot of ways. A lot of it is is the fault of the West and deliberate policy decisions that made a lot of Western capitalists very rich and ruined a lot of lives in the East. And, you know, you, you see that's reflected in people's feelings about the process. And as we've teased a couple times, but just to reiterate, next week we're going to dive into these cultural divides more and see how they persist and how this process of domination of the East by the West extends beyond just the political and economic realms, but really also encompasses a much larger cultural and ideological project, including a battle over the memory of the East. In addition to what we'll talk about there, we've got a special guest interview for you. So we're very excited about that. I think that's all I have. Michelle? That's it. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks a lot. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.